iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, I am delighted because with me in the studio today, it's, yes, James Gearbrandt, or as we like to call him, the only living Gearbrandt in captivity, and also joining us, and I should have a word with our producer, Charlie, um, because you tell me if you're happy with this introduction, former Coventry midfielder, Stuart Robson. Uh, I think I've played for more high-profile clubs. Yeah, you might have been slightly more associated with another club, too. But um, I love this. Charlie slips these little things into our script from time to time, which delight us. So later on, we'll be asking former footballer turned Times columnist Gregor Robertson about his column on the PFA and the annual subject of Gordon Taylor's wages. And uh, former Downing Street press secretary, lifelong Burnley fan, and now crime novelist Alistair Campbell will be joining us later to discuss Brexit. No, 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 no. He's going to discuss football. But we start with the magic of the FA Cup fifth round on Saturday night. We're going to start at Huddersfield. I debated should we start at Rochdale because that was more magical. We will get to Rochdale and Spurs uh, as well, James. But I think in terms of talking points and given that that was Tottenham's B team, we'll go with the two Premier League teams, yes? All right. I'm happy with that. There you go. I thought you might be. Um, what do we read into this, Robbo? Uh, United back on track after their defeat. I mean, Huddersfield still a Premier League side, still went out there, tried to win, still awkward with mm-hmm. wags. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Manchester United uh, played how you expect Manchester United to play when they're playing at their best away from home. They defended quite well all around the field and they counterattacked with a bit of pace. Uh, Sanchez has added a little bit of creativity to them in the top third of the field with his passing and his ability to run past people. And we saw the return of Lukaku as a powerful centre forward who can make runs in behind and run with the ball as well. Those were such vintage Lukaku goals, right? I mean, Absolutely. And the <laughs> second one was brilliant. Um Okay, now that we've dispensed with the game, uh, let's talk about everything that goes around it. And I'll get to VR in a second, but first I want to talk about Pogba because, all right, obviously he's had a couple rough games. Um, on Friday, Mourinho came out and he was very angry about all the pundits out there who, who questioned Pogba's position on the pitch, uh, who, who raised the possibility that there was tension between himself and Pogba. Since Sanchez's arrival... Pogba hasn't played as well. It looked to a lot of people that United played a 4-2-3-1 system in in these last games where Pogba's underperformed with Jesse Lingard sort of in the attacking midfield role and Pogba further back alongside Matic. One of the issues that um, Mourinho addressed 
was he said, no, 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 you're all wrong. That's not where he played. We played a three-man midfield, and we had Lingard on the center right and Pogba on the center left and Matic holding, whereas he put it Lingard and Pogba were eights, and Matic was a six, if, you, if you're old school uh, and you believe in numbers. Is he right? I, I don't understand the positional thing that people talk about with Pogba. Midfield players, good midfield players, great midfield players, which I think Pogba is and should be, is that they should be able to do both sides of the game. And Pogba, in my view, can do every aspect of the game, apart from defending set plays in his own box. He's not particularly good at that. So if he's in a deeper role, he can switch the play. If he's playing further forward, he can go past people with the ball and get shots away. And if he's defending, I think he's got great strength and he's got that ability and pace to get close to people. So I don't think it matters where he plays in that central midfield area. He should be playing well. So many of your former colleagues exposed on television who criticise Pogba they say uh, a lot of times it's it's because of his position on the pitch. And, and I think the argument they make is that, well, it has to do with where he receives the ball. If he receives the ball and, you know, Phil Jones is standing next to him, he's going to be more limited in what he can do. I still think that even if he's playing deeper, when he gets the ball and he gets turned, he's the best player in probably the Premier League still at hitting big diagonal passes out to wide players. And that's what he can do from the position he's playing in if he's that slightly deeper. And I think with, if you're playing a... a a midfield player, again, if Matic is holding, Pogba can make forward runs and go and join in at the right time. It just means he, he has to pick the right time to go and join in. But then are you getting the best out of him, I think, is the argument? Or are you m- more limiting? Well, the other interesting thing is that the, the system that you alluded to as, as not being Pogba's ideal system, the four-two-three-one, where he plays alongside Matic in a slightly deeper role, that actually was a system that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the early weeks of the season he seemed to play quite well in. He was playing alongside Matic and everyone was kind of quite enthused by the Pogba-Matic double pivot, you know, Matic sort of hold. Yeah. I mean, obviously it hasn't helped that Matic's form has dropped off, but Matic was holding and, and I think everyone quite liked that that role for him. Obviously United were playing really well. That was kind of, I guess, in the early weeks of the season when, when Mkhitaryan was actually playing pretty what, well. What, what I would argue to that, I mean, you're absolutely right. What I would argue to that is, and you, you touched upon there with Mkhitaryan, as I see it, this is just my own view, but the difference, the, the two things there. One is Mkhitaryan was there. So you had another, you know, when the opposition parked the bus, you had another creative outlet that you don't necessarily have when your wingers are, you know, when you got Sanchez, Lingard, and, um, and Martial there. Not that they're obviously great players, but they're not necessarily Mkhitaryan types. Mm. Would you not um, say Sanchez is, is the ideal person to come in off the touchline and play exactly where Mkhitaryan was playing and do it better than Mkhitaryan? <laughs> Alexis Sanchez is a better player than Mkhitaryan, anyway, both on the ball and with his I passing. I, but I, th- I think it's a, different type of, it's a different type of contribution. It's a different type of playmaking that, that Alexis Sanchez does. And I think in that context, Pogba was coming from deeper. The other thing I would say is those early season games... United had all those sort of 4-0 wins and stuff. If you recall, they were scoring early and they were scoring a bunch of goals late mm. because by that point, a lot of times the opposition would stream forward and then they'd, they'd hit you on the break. Where Pogba's let himself down slightly. As a midfield player, after about 15 minutes, you need to assess what sort of game this is going to be. You know, Am I going to be put under pressure? Where am I going to find that bit of space? Is it a game where I'm going to be able to get turned and play those forward passes? Am I going to be put under pressure when the ball's played in so I have to play one and two touch until I can buy myself a bit of space later on in the game? And what Paul Pogba hasn't done very well is has assessed 
what the game's going to be like. So when he's put under pressure, he'll still take four and five touches and try and wriggle out of situations. He gets the ball pinched off him and he doesn't learn his lesson because he'll try it again instead of saying, right, if he wants to get to, I'll play it around the corner. Next time he won't get so tight to me because he knows I'm going to play the ball around the corner and play one-twos against him. So he needs to assess the games better than he's doing at the moment. You also think people also seem to forget something quite important about Pogba is that prior to the Spurs game he was playing really really well yeah. uh, he has nine assists this season in the Premier League there's only two guys who have more and they both happen to play for Manchester City who score a bazillion goals and that's De Bruyne and Sané and both those guys have had a lot more time on the pitch than, than Pogba who of course was injured this year then of course he had a suspension um, VAR now I'm going to try to sum this up and I obviously Juan Mata scores a goal it's it's very, very close. Flag stays down. And then for those watching on television, they then put up this picture, uh, which, as we discovered, apparently came from Hawkeye, which is one of the companies that, that does these graphics and has these monitoring systems, with these lines purportedly showing that he was offside, and the lines looked like they were, you know, drawn by, like, uh, somebody on acid they, or something. They weren't on the right angle either. <laughs> There's there, there no parallax. Yeah, no, they weren't even straight. Um... So already you got VAR, who some people are just determined to, to keep banging this, it's going to kill the game, drum, blah, 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 and then you see this nonsense. Now, obviously, that, that technical thing was a mistake. We were told that these were not the VAR lines that the, um, that the VAR was looking at. It's just some kind of screw-up that happened. And it's supposedly not BT Sports' fault because those were the lines that Hawkeye sent them. I mean, you know, in the heat of the moment, live TV... What struck me though, and, and this kind of makes me, and I spent some time on Twitter on this because this kind of gets my goat a little bit. I think there's two things that are going to be necessary if VR is going to be a success. One is better communication and we've been through this and people need to know what's going on and maybe we should be seeing exactly what the VAR is seeing, maybe even listening to their conversations so that we understand it better. Fine. But the other thing is education. It absolutely boggles my mind how now we've had more than a thousand top flight games with VAR. The Confederations Cup last year, which was on television, that was all VAR. They've had VAR all season long in the Bundesliga, in the Portuguese League, in Major League Soccer. They had it in the A League last year. They have it in Serie A. And I still have to flip on my television and see ex professional pundits. I'm thinking of Paul Scholes here, but he's certainly not the only one. Um, and colleagues saying, why do they disallow Mata's goal? Yeah, it's close. But it's obviously, it's not a clear and obvious error. How does this happen? How can we be reporting on the game and not and talking about VAR and not even knowing how it works? Let me spell this out again. Clear and obvious error applies to decisions that require interpretation. In other words, to subjective decisions. If you feel the referee really made a gigantic cock up, you tell him and then he goes and reviews and sees if he wants to change his mind. Clear and obvious error does not apply to stuff which is positional and factual. But could you actually say, when you looked at it again, I know they had those dodgy lines, could you actually say that matter was offside when you saw it yourself? All right, there's two elements to that. First of all, VAR, and again, I, I don't know because it seems to me like here in England they're kind of making it up as they go along with the VAR in Stockley Park or whatever. But in other leagues they don't just look at the blurry picture and have some guy hitting the, the play pause button, right, to get the right frame. They actually have software that allows them to determine much more accurately than, than, than the human eye whether somebody is offside or not. 
which is why they said, no, there's, there's no we're not going to go and debate this. My other point, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten about this, is everybody praised the lines, but, oh, I got it spot on, look, you know, oh, and it was clear, not a clear and obvious error. I appreciate it was hard for the linesman or whatever, but assistant referees have also been told in games with VAR not to put your flag up unless you're 100% certain. Everybody seems to have forgotten this. Maybe the, the, it was a difficult call for the assistant to make, but it's not like he's a, it was so tight that it's not like he's a genius because he kept his flag down. He was told to keep his flag down if it's close and let VAR do its job. So this, this whole notion to me just, just boggles the mind. If he had put his flag up and they'd done the VAR and, and Mata had been a fraction of, 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 of and he moved a fraction of, of a second later, then we would have been, then, then, then that, that goal wouldn't have stood because, because, there, because obviously once you, once your flag goes up, you know, you can't, you can't go, you can't travel back in time. Well, there, interestingly, and I might, might be remembering this wrong, but wasn't the, the Iheanacho goal, the first, the first goal that it, in English football that was awarded by, um, that was essentially retrospectively awarded by VAR, that was, that was, I think, I'm right in saying, an offside call in which he was flagged off, but because it was such a late flag, play had continued. Yeah, because the referee didn't blow the whistle. If he'd have blown the whistle, then that's the end of the move and you can't go back to it. But the referee allowed play to go on. He finished it off, and then they went back to look at the VAR and said he was onside, so the goal stands. But the, the linesman did put up the flag. But, but, it the, was re- so- but, but the referee waited and waited until Ian Nacho had put the ball in the net Mm. And then said, let VAR do its yeah. job. L- let's not forget, too, that the referee has the power to overrule. Yeah. To over- overrule the linesman. He can signal play on when, when the linesman's um, waving his flag or, or whatever. I don't know. I just, just kind of realize how we need to, however, whichever way you feel about VAR, and I have a lot of respect for people who are against it on, for philosophical reasons. I mean, to me, that's a very valid argument. But all these other people, just educate yourself. And we in the media need to do a better job. And if the man speaking on the telly says, well, it's ridiculous because it wasn't a clear and obvious error, you are spreading falsehoods and lies. Stop it. The best the best country or the best league that's, that's uh, educated the pundits, educated everybody, is MLS. Uh, they had Howard Webb and Peter Walton go over there. You look funny. English guys, right? English guys. They took them out there. Uh, and we had a four-hour seminar with Howard Webb, and he went through it, and it's online, and we kept on watching it. So we know, and the directors are in con- com- the, the TV directors know exactly, they've got a camera on the referee, so they know exactly what his signals are. It's the league that does it the best. And funny enough, they're the league that educated us more than anybody else. We're joined now by uh, Gregor Robertson, who, for those who don't read the paper, uh, really should, is one of our columnists and a former professional footballer as well, who's actually then gone on, um, educated himself, and is now a very gifted writer. Now, I feel like every year we have the same debate. Uh, Gordon Taylor, who's the head of the of the Professional Footballers Association, which is the uh, players' union that represents uh, players, and he's been in that job for a very, very long time, his salary gets published, and I think any amount of money over fifty thousand pounds a year, somebody would would go and have a problem with, right? Oh, he's the highest paid trade unionist in England, blah blah blah. 
And there's a backlash and people compare the amount of money to the amount of money set aside for concussion research and stuff like that. I think it's with the bonus this year, it was something like 2.3 million pounds that he earns. Now, Gregor, you wrote a piece on Saturday kind of outlining, guys, take it easy a little bit because the PFA actually does a lot of really good stuff and it's kind of the PFA's business what they decide to pay the chief executive. Am I right? Uh, Just about. I agree that well, definitely the PFA do a lot of good work, and uh, I'm someone who's benefited from from their uh, encouragement to think about life after football and uh, subsidise my my university fees, things like that. But I mean, as I made clear in the piece, I don't think I don't think you can justify that level of uh, that level of earnings for for Gordon Taylor, to be honest. Well, it's worth putting in context. That's what I was I was really trying to say, I think. Well, one of the things I'm grateful for in your piece, because it also your piece also explained in greater detail than, of, of, than anywhere else I'd read, uh, and again, I haven't read every publication out there, how they arrive at, at his salary. So there's a committee made up of PFA trustees who are, who are former members, right? Former players, I should say. That's right, yeah. Um, and if memory serves, it was... And it's funny, because I actually know a lot of these guys. It's Brendan Batson, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Elliott, who I know very well, plus David Weir and Chris Powell, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Do, do they negotiate with Taylor, Taylor's salary? I don't know. People were not very forthcoming. I spoke to yeah. one trustee, and they were quite cagey about that. Uh, I don't know how they how they, they come to the figure, but those are the people who are responsible for it. Right. My take is this. I think Gordon Taylor, he could ask for 100 million pounds a year if he wants, right? <laughs> I know. It, it doesn't really matter. He has a right to be paid as much as as much as he thinks that, I think everybody does. So I don't know that you necessarily direct the bile at him, but I also think that the people who approve his salary and who decide his salary um, have a duty of care towards the organization and towards the members, and you're a member too, right? Yeah. If... They should be answering you when you say, hey, why are you paying him so much money? Do you think he wouldn't do the job if you were paying him, say, a million pounds instead of 2.3 million? Well, I think I think from, from, from conversations with people in the PFA, they, they always come back to the same point about Gordon Taylor being in, in that room with Richard Scudamore negotiating the, the TV revenue deal every year uh, or every three years, however, however often it happens. And they basically say he's played a blinder. He, If it wasn't for him... The PFA wouldn't be so rich, so that's basically how they justify it. Although no, no one that, would say that but, on the uh, record. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I appreciate that part. But the thing is, he negotiated this a long time ago. So what? Well, they're, they're, they're paying him back over time for this great deal that he negotiated for the PFA twenty years ago. Yeah, and then and obviously in two thousand one, they tried to change it considerably, and he fought hard and, and threatened straight right. action. I'm sorry, seventeen um, years ago. But do do, do you see what I'm getting? I mean, I think this is where people ask these questions. And I I put it this way. I I think a little more transparency would be good. Just to explain to your members and say, Gordon is really valuable to us. We don't want to lose him. We think it's actually realistic that despite the fact that he's in his mid-70s, he might leave and go somewhere else that'll pay him more money. So we need to keep him because in net terms, we think that he's worth every penny. And this is why we pay him a lot of money. I, I don't see why somebody can't come out and actually explain this in some level of detail to the membership and to the public, I, because otherwise, all 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 that happens is like you know it's just a backlash against Gordon Taylor. Be like, oh look, greedy Gordon Taylor, he pays himself two point three million pounds. When, as you point out, Gregor, 
It's not Gordon Taylor paying himself this money. Although, I mean, the, the, the only thing you have to say is that that, that group of trustees have all, a long connection to the PFA, are all, all former players. Most of them are co-opted. Two of them were, were elected by the PFA Management Committee. You could suggest that that's a bit of a cool shop and, and they've known Gordon Taylor a long time. Yeah, Brendan Batson has been Gordon Taylor's right-hand man for many, many years, hasn't he? Of course, yeah. So you know, they're, they're, it's not like it's not like an impartial committee. No, absolutely not. And they've probably you, all been appointed at some point you, by Gordon Taylor and backed by Gordon Taylor. Are you still a PFA member? Am I still? I don't think I am. I, 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 you don't I, think you are? This is what's wonderful about this organisation. Well, you are. You are. Everyone's a PFA uh, member. I, I am a member, but I, I've got to say, do you I've, pay your dues? No. You don't uh, have to. I, I've got. You to, don't <laughs> have to pay your dues while you're a current player. And I would, I would say that I gave up on the PFA many, many years ago over right. uh, injuries, over uh, a couple of transfers. But this was before Gordon Taylor was no, in no, charge. No, Gordon Taylor oh. was in charge. Oh. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the PFA did nothing for me. Or Maybe they just don't situation. like you, Robbo. They probably don't, because I challenged them properly. <laughs> but I think the one thing we can all agree on is a little more transparency would probably help the PFA's image and, and Gordon Taylor's image as well on this point. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Love the game? Then don't miss The Game Daily. It's your lunchtime update from football's finest writers, and it's only at thetimes.co.uk. I'm glad to be joined by Alistair Campbell, who, um, well, you've written a book, which we'll get to in a second, but just because we do have listeners from all over the world, and I, I don't mean to burst your bubble a little bit, but you're quite well known in this country. Um, there's people listening from all over the world. If you had to define who is Alistair Campbell, mm-hmm. and not in the metaphysical family man, blah, blah, blah way, mm-hmm. but in just, <laughs> why are you famous? Could you do that? Uh, well, my website says writer, communicator, strategist. Uh, every, virtually every public speaking engagement I do abroad, I'm introduced as Tony Blair's former right-hand man. There you go. And I've written 14 books since I stopped being that, although I'm still a little bit that. All right. And for those who don't know... And Tony you... Blair was the British Prime Minister. They've heard of him. Yeah. If we... to you, they've heard of him. Don't you think? <laughs> I, I think so. I Just think about. So. You know what? Just about. We skew younger here. You know, okay. Do you know how many years it's been since Tony Blair left? Yeah, I did. I was there. 
Yeah. So what year was it? 2007. That's 11 yeah, years ago. Yeah, I know, ago. but he's still for most, even, I mean, I've got kids and I'd say their generation, I would say Tony Blair is better known around the world than Theresa May. Well, yeah. I, uh, David Cameron. Davis. Yeah. So, anyway. yeah, yeah. I've never seen him silence before. Oh, that there is you really go. Good. Listen, I'll do that. I'll do that more than once. You yeah. watch. <laughs> Keep it going. But the reason, no, but I mean, this is where it comes from. But but the other thing is, you have, uh, you're, I don't like the, the phrase celebrity football fan, but we've had this before. We've had only had one other politician on before. We had a guy named Damien Collins, who's, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's select committee, blah. Yeah, but other than that, hates cyclists, but he loves football and he's well. legit. You've written this book uh, together with uh, a, a man named Paul Fletcher, who's, who's a former professional, and a, one of those former professionals who, as you point out, has been able to parlay that into a real non-football job, or you know. Well, he or, stayed in business. He stayed in football business. Yeah. Now, this book is not a football book. It's an it's it's a novel set in football, set in a uh, set in a particular era, as well um, of the of the early seventies. Mm-hmm. What made you want to do this? Uh, well, I do love football, and also Fletch, who played for Burnley when I was a kid. He's a very good friend, and he went when he left Burnley. He he went off into the football business. He he was part of the he built helped to build Wembley, the Rico, uh, the McAlpine, Reebok. He's he's brilliant. He's a stadium builder, is what he is. But then he came back to Burnley. He's sort of the Franny Lee of Burnley uh, in the sense that a guy who then goes and makes a ton more money. I don't think he made. In, he's, he's not necessarily made tons and tons of not money. Like he's not a builder, is he? He's he's st- he, he, he's not an architect. He's 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 involved in the project of stadium okay. building, and so he was he was I think he was on the board at the New Wembley, and he's done all sorts of different projects. But then he came back. He went to after he built the, helped to build the Huddersfield Stadium, he became CEO at Huddersfield. And then he came back to Burnley as CEO, and that's when I got to know him again. I first met him when I was getting his autograph as he got off a bus. So we became really good friends. And then one day, when when I go to a home game, he picks me up at Preston. I get the train from London to Preston. He picks me up, drive to Burnley, go back. And on this journey back one day, he just said, listen, don't laugh, but I'm writing a novel. So I laughed. Uh, And then he told me about it. He sent me stuff that he'd been writing. And, you know, he'd be the first to admit he's not a natural writer, but it's just an amazing story. And it is, I think it is a football novel in that the main character is a football manager, a struggling Scottish manager. He's Stan Tennant based, is it? It's not Stan. It's not Stan. And do you know what's really funny is, is that he's Scottish, yeah. right? It's an English club. We don't name the club. We don't give them colours. It can be anybody's club. But they, they're kind of, they've been punching above the weight and now they're starting to go in the slide. He's got a drink problem. His wife's left him. He's got his life sort of falling he apart. He could be any football manager then. His, his life's falling apart. There's a, sorry, he's, there's a scene that early on that where he has a, he, he lost his daughter when he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. when she was a little girl. Yeah, yeah. And he has this recurring dream of his daughter running, running onto the football pitch towards him and she's dressed all in white. And then there's, a pitch invasion, and he loses her oh, in, in the midst of the people. But, but I no, I, I just thought, amazed how many interviews I do where I could <laughs> I could say it's actually about science fiction. <laughs> but I'm curious, was that scene? Was that was that you, or was that was that Fletcher? Uh, I was going to say you can't remember. I think the dreams. I think anything to do with dreams is probably me. Uh, I'm very big on dreams, um, and I'm big on grief and loss. But the main characters, a cheery northerner. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the main characters and the and also the main IRA, the the plot line of the IRA, because the the backstory is there's an IRA 
uh, active service unit in London waiting to take out Merlin Reese, who was then a yep. Northern Ireland yep, secretary. Yep, yep. So that's the two plot lines, and they weave in and out of each other, and then at the end they come together in a, you know, an, an, an ending which, by the way, I'm really pleased to say nobody has yet twigged. Uh, lots of people who read to the end they say I never saw the ending coming they think they see it coming but then there's a little twist at the end so Fletch sent me the stuff, I read it, I thought it was a great story but I had a lot on to be honest I was about I was sort of fobbing him off a bit I said what I'll do is I'm going to give it to my agent to read and see what he says Ed Victor was my agent, he died last year but he, he read it and he, and he knew Fletch because he'd come to a game once with us and he said to me, he says, listen, he says, I mean, you know, it's not publisher because he's not, a, he's not a writer. He says, but there's a great story in there. He says, you should do it with him. And I said, oh, God, I've got too much on. And then it's funny how life works because a few months later, I had it on my bedside table, just sitting there. And my brother died. Uh, and I had to go back up to Scotland and sort things out. And then there was a post-mortem and it was a long wait for the funeral. And I got back to the house and I threw my bag on the bed and the book was sitting there and just said, sod it, I'm going to do it. I don't know why that was the moment that I decided to do it, but I did. And then I really got into it. And then it's just been great fun. We've had a lot of fun doing it, a lot of fun. And I think that era, that era was the era that I became a football fanatic as opposed to just liking football. And there was that connection with the IRA at that time, wasn't oh, Because I, I joined Arsenal, uh, I first went up as a schoolboy at, at 12, 13, and my parents didn't want me to, we lived in South End, didn't want me to go up to London yeah. to, because there was all the bombing that was going on. You know, we'd never, been, we didn't travel up to well, London. Well, that's so funny because Fletch says that one of the reasons he, he thought that maybe an IRA plot line would work was because when he was playing at Burnley, his wife, Sean, would say to him, look, you know, you, are you sure they're going to take care of you? And they don't want you, just be careful. And he's like, so well, what can I do to be careful? We've got to go. And so the, and the last game is in London uh, at Chelsea. It's a six-round six cup tie. And that's when the two plot lines kind of, they mesh. Now, looking at the game today compared to compared to what we saw in, in, in the 70s, um, I, I suppose when, when you, as you said, fell in love with it. One thing that, still strikes me as very strange from my perspective as somebody who's not from here but part of his life growing up here is that I think this might be the only country in in Western Europe where there's so much of class associated with the sport or has been traditionally mm-hmm. um, I don't hear any other country say oh it's the working man's game um, because it's not and every single footballer I, mean, I can probably count on one hand the number of English footballers I've met historically who come from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds. Very, very few. Well, I, I think I was the first public school boy to play in, in the top division. Which seems absurd to me because in other countries across Europe, you have people coming from all stripes mm. and you have people of all stripes watching the game. Mm. Um, now, well, I here- think there's a reason for that is that, is that in, our, in, in Britain, uh, rugby union... Mm was the sport of the middle classes, and to some extent still is. Unless you went to a public school that played football, yeah. all the public schools were rugby. Yeah, but, and even if you did that, it's very unlikely that you were going to be pushed yeah. through the sort of football route. But I think it was a very working-class sport, both the playing and on the spectating side as well. And I think what I think the change has actually been the kind of... I think there are more people who would see themselves as middle class today than there were back then, added to which the game itself has changed. And I think one of the one of the things I love about Burnley is actually the cr- the crowd is still pretty much the same. It's a bit older, 
sometimes when we've been playing at places like Arsenal and, you know, Manchester City was a bit like that when we went this time, you sort of felt that it was like... It wasn't that he was all middle class, but a hell of a lot of tourists and a hell of a lot of people yeah, he yeah, felt yeah, just yeah. weren't sort of up for it in the same way. So I think football is part, of the, you know, part of this book. The guy, the main character, the manager, he's a work. His dad was a uh, was a was a miner. He is he's a very Labour guy. He's up with this chairman who's a total Tory. And I think there is a lot of politics in that. You go through the great Scottish managers, whether it's Ferguson or Steen or Shankly and these guys, they, they were political creatures. Brian Clough's another one. He was he was he was a guy of the working class for the working class. One of the one of the big changes that that's that's obviously happened is football's become way more globalized, um, way more commercialized. I mean, one of my pet things is sort of this incredible polarization that 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 we're seeing. Where just look in terms of wage bill, in terms of spending, in terms of numbers. You know, even in England, where people say like, "Oh, look, you know, so anybody can win it." No, you've got six teams who are so far ahead of everybody else at, at everything. <laughs> and somehow, yes, Burnley are seventh. And born a Burnley supporter, and I know Leicester won two years ago, and you know, freak occurrences do happen, but you're probably never going to win anything. Whereas when you were a kid, even though you guys hadn't won anything in a long time... No, we won the championship when I was four. Okay, no, I meant when you were... Early 70s, when you were a little second, more, third, something like that? Six was as high as we got. Right. Do- was it Dobson? Dobson, yeah, Dobson, that's the yeah. series. Yeah. Ralph Coates. <laughs> Ralphie Coates, yeah. But... Given your background in politics, mm. I'm assuming you're not somebody who's totally against regulation, but mm. then you were sort of more associated with New Labour, so maybe you only like, you know, you like your free markets too. Well, I think with the, with the I was out in Canada recently, and I had uh, I went out for dinner with Steve Caldwell, who was our captain for a while, and, he, and he's now in Toronto, and he played in the MLS, and he was saying this thing, for example, about within the, um, the American system, they're only allowed so many games per season where they can use a private plane to go to games. Uh and that's that's sort of you know, and you've got the thing you know, but the draft about the the weakest team getting the strongest player and all that, that kind of thing. I think is is stuff that might be worth looking at. But you see this thing about okay, it's true that if you support, if you'd have said to a Man- if you'd have had a Manchester City fan in the studio fifteen, twenty, thirty years ago, the idea you lot are going to win the Champions League, forget it. Now okay, it's been driven by money, but my point is change happens all the time. I suspect that what will eventually happen is there will be a kind of European Super League of some sort. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of Scottish football in this book because, you know, I was brought up as a Scot. My parents both Scottish. I, I love Scottish football and the history and so forth. And, you know, again, back, back here, this our, our fictional manager is constantly having arguments about how this Scottish player is better than that English player in a way that you just don't have them now because... You know, even in those I. days, you'd go if you wanted a, a, a big centre forward who could head the ball, you'd go up to Scotland. If yeah. you wanted a tricky winger, you'd go to uh, to somewhere up in Scotland to yeah. go and buy yeah. one. If you wanted Ireland, a big centre half, you'd go, and go up to Scotland again, yeah. or yeah. a manager. You'd it's go amazing. Up to Scotland. So, but that that's kind of gone. But it doesn't mean it can't come back. I suspect at some point, I think Celtic and Rangers eventually will end up in an English league of some sort. I feel, having followed Burnley, I followed Burnley, we were literally league champions when I first saw them. And 25 years later, we were we had to beat uh, Leighton Orient on the last game of the season in 1987 to stay in the league. Otherwise, we were out and probably would have finished as a club. And now we're back at seventh in the Premier League. Now, I think that is a better, more fulfilling, more rewarding journey than if I was a kid, you know, getting into football now and deciding, you know, shall I support Barcelona or Man United or Man City or Chelsea? I'd rather be a Rochdale fan today than a Tottenham fan. The big FA Cup story this weekend, and occasionally we're we're sort of know, stereotypical as it is, and it's a cliche. This is pretty 
darn cool, wasn't it, James? Rochdale, little Rochdale, on the verge of relegation to League Two. I think they're last on the table, if I'm not mistaken. They are. Um, they host Mighty Spurs, who, who, of course, you know, coming off that 2-2 victory at uh, Juventus. Uh, they have to relay their pitch because Pochettino cries about how it's a bad pitch and for his superstars. So Pochettino goes and rewards them by um, making 11 changes, sending out 11 reserves, effectively. And it finishes 2-2, and there's a last-minute equalizer. I, I know you're probably the youngest person here by many, by many, many decades, but... But don't say magic of the FA Cup. Please don't say magic of the FA Cup. <laughs> but that warms your heart, also because you hate Spurs, right? I was going to say, even my heart was, was warmed by that. No, I mean, it's a, it was a classic um, FA Cup tie, wasn't it? You know, And I think actually the last couple of rounds, the, the Tottenham games have been great because obviously the, the Newport game was, was another sort of um, classic Cup underdog performance. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was obviously a great match, obviously the, the last minute equaliser. And now, obviously, because Tottenham are playing at Wembley this season, Rochdale gets to go to Wembley, which is nice. I, I kind of thought there was something karmic in this, in the sense that, all right, I, I'm not going to blame a manager. It's the reality of the game if he wants to make 11 changes for, for an FA Cup it's match. Good team, yeah, hey, yeah it's I was going to say, hey, have, you, have you seen the 11 changes yeah. that he made? I Mora mean, was amazing. Yeah. Lucas Mora, they've just bought for a lot of money. Okay, that's fine, but... When you make 11 changes like that, what yeah. you, you lose a lot in terms of chemistry, in, in especially when you've got a very coordinated team on the ball the, the way Spurs are. And I think part of the reason that Spurs were so poor, in my opinion, in the first half was because you had 11 dudes who probably had never played together. And on the other side, this guy I'd never heard of, probably your mate, Keith Hill, um, Not my mate, <laughs> going and, you know, he plays a very organized 3-5-2 and they moved effectively and they were on the front foot. Pochettino, clearly, and I'm not giving away any secrets here, he either wanted to win this game or get knocked out. He really did not want a replay for obvious reasons. Did you right? listen to his interview after the game? It was so refreshing because he said, I'm actually pleased we got another game because these players that play today, they need game time. Some of them are not fully fit and they need another game to get themselves yeah. fit. If you so look closely, his nose got a little bit longer. Yeah, but he's, he's right. That. Aldevireld. <laughs> Aldevireld needs games to be regarded as a first-team player again. Danny Rose needs more games. He is, he is spending way too much time in the tattoo parlour. He is, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, he's just covered in them now. The team he put out should be of course, should beat Rochdale. And they, and, but Rochdale played well, and Keith Hill did his job perfectly. He got the team organised. He stopped the wing-backs playing uh, for Spurs, or, or got his wing-backs to stop Spurs' full-backs mm. getting forward. It's a good performance. And also, you, you, Keith Hill's, uh, I think he's... You know when, um, I can't remember which managerial change it was at Burnley. It might have been when Brian Laws took over, but I remember I phoned Alex Ferguson and said, right, who's around? You, you know, you think we should be sort of looking at it. I remember he said, one of the names he said was, was David Moyes, did he? He didn't suggest David Moyes, no. He, he was not the chosen one, Burnley. But, but he, I remember he did say, you should have a look, take, get them to have a look at Keith Hill. He's been around for a long, long time at that level. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is brilliant that, and especially, especially the fact that the, the Spurs penalty was so kind of, you know, dodgy. It was a penalty. Was it? Yes. Really, really? was it? Yeah, I, I, I'm. I mean, we were actually talking about this earlier, and just as an aside, right? Yeah. When I saw it in real time, I thought, like, all right, he he did it again. You yeah. know, he took yeah. a massive dive, and then you watch it and you see there there was contact. He might have embellished a little bit. Yeah. But, but you were talking before about how referees. Off air, I don't know if I'm outing you here, but no, 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 no. About how referees so often just act on reputation. Say like, oh well, this one's not a diver, so I'll give them the benefit of the doubt there, and that one is, and because. 
can't quite know what they can't see things properly. No, and uh, what I was saying was that I spoke to a referee and he was saying, oh, the referee went, and he's a referee analyst, you know, so he was, he's looking back at the referees and said, on the weekend, he made a wrong decision, not about this game, he made a wrong decision and it was, it was, should have been a penalty and he, he booked the player for diving. And you should know from his representation, he's not a diver, which, so you're basing your <laughs> refereeing decisions on what he's done previously. Yeah. You know, well, that that can't be right. Because if I was to throw this out, going back to the Juventus game, is, is anybody here want to say Harry Kane is a diver? Mm. He'll make things look a little bit worse than they are. But he took a dive in that game, yeah? yeah. And was booked. And I hate it when players dive. And I, what I love about Sean Dyche, he just, I mean, we just don't do it. And maybe we should. He sometimes says we're a bit naive, he says. Sorry, can I just digress briefly on Sean Dyche? Because I've, I've never met the guy I've met plenty of people who've worked with him in the past he's a ledge okay i'm assuming you know him much better than i do i have the impression that he sometimes plays a character and maybe that, that's his real voice i'm not suggesting he puts it on <laughs> he, he talks to his missus that way yeah yeah, yeah. all right okay um but oh, he's worse than that <laughs> i i feel like he presents himself as like this guy about oh you know I'm again sort of this sort of fancy Dan and all these sort of modern buzzwords and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the stuff that he does... is modern buzzword. It's actually pretty sophisticated. Yeah. So why does he have to pretend that he's like some kind of caveman? Is it is it part of his look or no, is it his I like... Think, I think you miss... miss uh, Funny enough, I'm seeing him on Friday because I'm doing a... I'm very excited about this. Sky have asked me to do the Jeff Shreve pre-match interview <laughs> when we play with with Sean when we do play Everton. So um, I think he's. Uh, you can ask him some hard questions. Oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to make his life oh, easy. No, no, no. <laughs> the first one you should ask. The first one you should ask him. Did you really want to go to Crystal Palace in the summer? That should be the first question you ask him. I've talked to him about that. I'm <laughs> satisfied with his answers about that. Well, and the then past. he googled. We're he, look to the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, then he googled Steve Parish and realised that no, yeah. not the place for me. No. Yeah. Enough of this. Time now for some quick hits. Since Alistair's here, you're not involved in them, but if you want to pipe up... Uh, uh, it meant to only be 15 seconds is this well, weekend. No, they're, I'm, they're, good at, I'm good at the short stuff. Yeah. They, are, they, they, they are 20 seconds, <laughs> 20 actually. 20 seconds we get okay. uh, and, then, uh, and then I play a sound effect and shout at Gearbrandt when he goes too long. Chelsea spank Hull City on Friday, or really Chelsea's B-side spank Hull City's B-side, and uh, they're through to the last eight. Robbo, did you see anything meaningful there at all? And are Chelsea viable FA Cup champions? They are viable FA Cup champions. Uh, I think they're playing uh, with a little bit more cohesion now. I think they're playing with more energy. Uh, that's where they went off the ball. I think they were waiting for the manager to get sacked. He's not going to get sacked now. So the players are now getting on with it. I think they could win the FA Cup, but they're against a very tough team in Leicester, a team that have nothing else to play for. Southampton went away to West Brom and advanced to the FA Cup quarterfinal. Uh, Gearbrandt, Southampton are in the relegation zone. Is this really what they wanted, or are they actually better than the table suggests? And be nice to Pellegrino this time. Um, I don't think they're better than the table suggests. I think in this case, the positivity generated by a win probably outweighs the drawback of having to play extra games. Speaking of West Brom, now for those who haven't followed this, I am not making this up. So four senior players apparently stole a cab last week at half past five in the morning outside a McDonald's in Barcelona on a, quote, warm weather break in February. And by the way, Barcelona in February, not warm. Uh, there's just so much wrong with those words that I just spoke. Um, and now we found out that 
those four professionals uh, include the likes of Gareth Barry and former Manchester City and Arsenal target and Manchester United defender Johnny Evans. Now, these are two veterans who we're told are model pros, especially Barry. I don't want to pick on Matthew Syed, but just a few days earlier, he'd written this long thing about how Gareth Barry was the ultimate professional. Robo, can you explain the player mindset to us? And also, we talk about fans paying wages and so on. Why shouldn't these people just be permanently publicly excoriated? And if I were the Chinese guy who owned the club, I'd just keep sacking people. I, I would sack these guys and say, you're never playing for the club again. And you know what? <laughs> yeah, I'd sack Pardew for obvious reasons. And that's it. Who wants to go on the trip? It's the manager that wants to go on the trip. Um, I can't explain why the players want to do that. Every time that I've been on a trip away, a warm weather training camp, uh, 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 players get together to make them uh, got better. Absolutely drunk and lost no, all your. There was valuable. always problems. I went away with Coventry when I was captain of Coventry. Terry Butcher was the manager, and two players went and slashed his tyres that he'd hide on a car. What, explain to me why I've got no it's idea funny. why they Alistair did it. Mr. Campbell's laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. It's, it's good for team spirit. And it never works. If you're a manager of a football club or a head coach, don't take the players away well, on just, a trip. We've just been to Portugal. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'd have to find out what's been going on there. The other thing which kind of really bugged me was they sort of got credit for coming forward because oh, we had to come forward because otherwise people would have speculated who it was and they would have blamed the younger players. Mm. Well, damn straight, I would have blamed the younger players because I would have assumed that you, Gareth Barry, would have had more sense. This is the example you're setting for the younger mm. players. You're talking about role models. That's why Gareth Barry's there. He's supposed to be a role model, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Sayed okay, writes not, a piece listen, about how Barry's you. a role model. because he's playing. There, there has to be rules and regulations. If you say to the players, here's the curfew, players for some reason will always try and break that curfew right. and misbehave I, particularly when they're abroad it's just mm. a, a yob mentality that footballers get into when they go away Carlos Carvajal's Swansea make it 10 games without a defeat in all competitions so they draw nil-nil at Sheffield Wednesday in a noticeably non-VAR game because in fact they got jobbed a little bit now he complained that there are too many replays and he said a bit like there are too many Police Academy films, which I thought was quaint. Why would you date yourself when like the last Police Academy film was like 15 years ago? But I, I'm starting to really like Carlos, and not just for his football. I mean, um, he handed, he, he's handing out Portuguese custard tarts at the uh, at the Swansea press conferences, which I mean is is as good a reason I, I, as I any. I think it's so. wonderful. I mean, wait, I'm starting to really like Carlos Carvajal. He's very, very good at the one-liners. When he was at Sheffield Wednesday, I, I, I sit just behind the away bench. And he's a very, very entertaining guy on the touchline as well. I mean, he's incredibly expressive and emotional. And he gets... I like his coat as well. He's got that little bit of fur around it. That's a bit 70s, isn't it? 80s. Jürgen Lacadia is a Brighton's record signing at £14 million. And he scores on his debut as they dispatch Coventry in the FA Cup. <laughs> Coventry, your former club, yeah. Robbo. What's your technical assessment of Lacadia? I know you watched him a bunch of times when he was at PSV. Yeah, he's uh, good in the air. He's a good finisher. He'll lead the line well. My problem being at Brighton, will there be enough players? Because he's going to play as a lone striker with probably Gross in behind him. Will there be enough support? Will there be enough players running beyond him? Because I don't think he's blessed with electric pace. He'll be a good signing, but I'm a little bit worried that Brighton won't get enough crosses into the box. They won't play on the front foot enough for him to score the goals they need to stay up. 
Arsenal fullback Hector Bellerin goes to speak at the Oxford Union. And by the way, this is how much we're scraping the bottom of the barrel on weekends when there's no football. And among other things, he appears to criticize Arsenal Fan TV, which for those who don't know, and maybe if you're over the the age of 40, you might not know, is a YouTube channel with 650,000 subscribers, which often consists of uh, guys. Is it Claude? Is that his name? No Uh, idea. I've seen, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, see, Alistair's hip. Gearbread's yeah. no idea what we're talking about. Do you, do you watch Claude on Arsenal Fan TV? Not regularly. No. Anyway, he sits outside the Emirates and he talks to fans. And often, as often happens when you do that, there will be criticism of the club or the players. Um, especially recently because, let's face it, Arsenal haven't had much to cheer about. Now, here's a quote from Bellerin. He says, it's so wrong for someone who claims to be a fan and yet their success is fed off of failure. How can that be a fan? They're just people hustling, trying to make money on their way, which everyone is entitled to do. There's this perception that negative news sells newspapers. That may be true when it comes to politics. In fact, there's plenty of data suggesting that positive news certainly sells a lot more when it comes to sport and football clubs. What I would say is that... Actually, you were kind of Arsenal fan TV. No, it wasn't fan TV. You, I was no, Arsenal no, TV. When you're, yeah, I know, but all you did was criticize Wenger. So you were kind of no, like those oh, guys on Arsenal fan TV, except you didn't have Claude interviewing you. You had you, somebody no, else. I, I was analyzing. I wasn't just critical. You were the business model leader. Yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. He's he the original what, progenitor yeah. of Arsenal fan but TV. What, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, because what happens is when Arsenal lose it, when Arsenal win a game, Nobody phones me up to ask my views on when they mm, win. Mm. I get a phone call straight away as soon as they lose the game. As soon as they lose the game, or they, sometimes even when they're 4-0 down at half-time, my phone starts ringing. Mm. Can we have you on at 8 o'clock? Can we have you on at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning? Can we have you on at 9 o'clock? you're the prince of darkness when it comes to ours. Look at this. You're even dressed in black Piers on a Monday Piers morning. Piers Morgan's the Wenger out voice, well, isn't he? Well, yeah. he, 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 <laughs> he keeps retweeting things that I've <laughs> but, no, I... So I can, but I can understand he, what he's saying. Is there some sort of ethos? us to to Arsenal which Arsenal fan TV have tapped into where let's just keep continue being negative or is it you know what guys we're negative because you're sitting on these enormous cash reserves you are the biggest club in London you certainly should be and yet you've had the same guy forever and people are frustrated they're not frustrated with the players I don't think they're particularly frustrated with the board most supporters are frustrated with Arsene Wenger and until that changes you're going to still get all the criticism of Arsenal as a football club but I also think if you're as big as Arsenal or Manchester United or Manchester City you're going to have that as a voice Mm. I do think as well there's there's something there's always been something pretty moany about Arsenal fans Mm. Uh, the, the 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 instinct certainly at Burnley the instinct that producer's nodding his head because he's one of them yeah they are they're moaning <laughs> aren't they but the, the, I I think our instinct is always to kind of don't matter who the manager is who the players are you stick up for them I think the the instinct especially Stan Stan oh, okay. was a I loved Stan Stan cried when he lost his job I mean we loved that sort of thing but I and this thing about good news bad news though. We got a, we've got a, the, our local paper in the book. There's, he gets banned from the ground at one point, and the paper. Sorry, just just on that in the book. I love it because the guy's name is Charlie Gordon. Yeah. Um, he can't, when things are going well in the headlines, they call him Charlie. When things start going badly, he becomes Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that happens. Right. That happens, right, isn't yeah. it? That happens. I mean, Arsene is no yeah, longer yeah. Arsene, is he? He's Wenger. Yeah. But I think that this thing about the... That's a local paper, and the local paper, when when we our team does get into the sixth round of the Cup, it's like just massive for the local paper. And they actually... They, they do this story about the chairman who's involved in a dodgy deal. 
and he denies it, even though it's true, and he bans them. And they eventually do apologise, even though they know it's true, because they've got to get back in with the club. Because that paper is dependent on the club for the stories. And when they're doing well, the paper does well. I think that's, I think that's still the case in local and, and regional papers. Well, and Arsenal fan, I want to make this very clear. I've never been on Arsenal Fan TV. I'm not paid by Arsenal Fan TV to say this. Their strength is they don't depend on the club for anything, right? And you need that, I think. It's a guy with a camera out there, and yeah. it's it's very it's very unfiltered. Gab, one for you. What's this I hear about FIFA wanting to overhaul the transfer system? Well, it's something that Johnny Fatino, the FIFA president, has touched upon. I had a chance to spend some time with him uh, last week uh, as well. Basically, there's there's a sense out there about trying to increase the, the com- competitiveness, combat the polarization, um, both worldwide and also within individual leagues. So I think you're looking at things like perhaps uh, limiting squad sizes, uh, limiting the uh, extent of the transfer window, which, of course, they're already doing here in England, um, regulating agents much more than they uh, than they have done. Agents have been unregulated for, what, four or five years now. You know, trying to see if there's a scope to, to introduce some mechanisms to try to level the playing field in case anybody hasn't noticed. And it's not just here in England, but, you know, you have certain leagues where where the same club wins every single year. And there's such a gap in resources out there that um, that they don't think is healthy. Uh, so they're going to go in conversation. They certainly can't do it alone. And despite what people think, he's not powerful enough to just kind of write a rule and it becomes facts. They need a lot of cooperation from the confederations, from the FAs, from the individual leagues. But maybe the mood has changed. All right, that's all we got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guests, James Gearbrandt, Stuart Robson, and joining us, the author of Saturday Bloody Saturday, Alistair Campbell. It's just three pounds for a three-month trial. Just search the Times online. Uh, you'll get access to all our wonderful content and also the Sunday Times content, some of which is wonderful too. Uh, this season, you can access highlights of every game in the Premier League, the Champions League, the Europa League, and the FA Cup. You can go check out those highlights like I did of Rochdale against Spurs to try to decide whether Dele Alli dived or not. And I concluded that he did not. We're going to be back next Monday after the big showdown. Yes, Jose Mourinho against Antonio Conte. I wonder if those two will behave. Manchester United and Chelsea. And we also have the small matter of the League Cup final. Arsenal and Manchester City. Boy, that one's going to be a real doozy. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.